Ephesians chapter 6. The whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And so Paul, in these last few chapters, has been urging us to live a life that is worthy of our position in Christ. That worthy life requires that we be filled with God's Spirit. That Spirit-filled life of submission is how we shine as lights in a dark world. And that life of submission involves every area of our lives. We've already looked at how that works in our our marriages. We've looked at how it works in our families. And this morning we'll be addressing about what that looks like in our work environments. So chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 5 and get to verse 9. Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 6, "'Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart as unto Christ.'" Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and neither is their respect of persons with him. We see here Paul first addresses servants. The word servants here means one who is in the state of being controlled by someone or something. In most of the cities of Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was a part, slaves far outnumbered free men. Most Christians in the early church were slaves. Now, some are uncomfortable with this passage and others like it in the Bible. They say, well, this endorses slavery, so therefore the Bible can't be good. Or they would say, by absence of a condemnation of slavery, it fails to challenge its evils. But those that conclude such things forget that Paul is writing to real people in real life situations who really need to know what to do. Saying that we do not mourn as those that have no hope is not an endorsement of death, but we have to deal with it, don't we? The words that Paul spoke are real words to real people who are really mourning the loss of a loved one, and they're words that they need to hear so they can figure out how to move forward in the midst of all their grief. Paul neither endorses nor condemns slavery here, not because he's okay with slavery, but because that wasn't a relevant topic for those he was writing to. His Ephesian listeners didn't have the opportunity to revolt against slavery or change the society they were in. They were either born slaves or made slaves or born into a home that had slaves or had acquired slaves before they got saved. And so now they needed to know how to move forward in whatever situation they might have found themselves in. And so when we understand why Paul says what he says, it allows us to understand the point that he is making, which is found in verse 8. And it's this, any kind of work that is good to do should be done with the right attitude whether you're a slave or not. Whatever your work environment or life situation is, any kind of work that is good to do should be done with the right attitude, which is why these verses are about work life. They're not about slave life. If you want to see Paul's heart on Christians and slavery, then read the book of Philemon. If you want to see how God hates any economic system that enslaves men, read the book of Revelation because he talks about how he destroys every single one of them. We aren't studying Philemon this morning or Revelation. We're studying Ephesians, which means we're going to talk about worthy work life. 
and what a life of submission looks like in our work environments. So Paul first addresses this worthy approach to work. He says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. The phrase be obedient there, it's a command. It means you must pay attention to do what they say. You must pay attention to do what they say. The word master here, it can mean owner, of course, but it can also simply mean one who has authority. And since verse 8 shows us that Paul has both slaves and free men in mind, that means it refers to an owner, a supervisor, an employee, a business owner. All of those things apply to these verses. So, if you have a boss or an owner or a supervisor, you need to pay attention to what they say. They are your authorities according to the flesh with regard to or in the sphere of our physical bodies. In other words, Paul makes it clear that the person is only an authority figure as it regards our physical work for them. This command only applies in the realm of work. It doesn't apply to all aspects of life. Even a slave back then in the harsh slave institutions they had in Greek and Roman culture, they had to refuse to obey their owner if their owner told them to do something contrary to Scripture. I remember I had a, a boss once. I, I've been in hiring most of my life, secular work outside the church. Most of it I've, I've been in hiring. And I had an owner once who told me and said, I don't want you to hire any more Latinos or any more black people. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm sorry, I refuse to do that. I said, what you're asking me to do is not only illegal and unethical, I said, but I'm a Christian and I don't respect persons. I will hire the best person for the job or you can find someone else to hire people. He was very upset with me and he said, you don't get to determine how I do policy here. And I said, yes. I said, but you might be my boss, but you're not my God. You don't get to tell me how to live my life. So you decide. I'm fine either way. <laughs> the Lord was very gracious to me and allowed me to keep that job. He didn't give me a hard time, and I hired the person I thought was best for the job, regardless of their ethnicity. God didn't have to do that. God doesn't promise He'll do that for us. God doesn't promise when we take a stand for what's right that everything will work out fine. Christians have suffered all throughout history. We read about it that Jesus is our example of suffering, and we're called to it, part of the Christian life. I had another boss that was much later in life was asking me to fudge numbers, to lie about the numbers that we were producing and, and how things really were. And I remember I looked at him, I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, you can, you can find someone else to do this position. That was, God was very gracious with me then too. We do not have to obey an authority in the work environment if they ask us to do something that is unbiblical. I didn't say something you didn't like, want to do, or I didn't say something that you don't think God would want you to do, but something says God says in His Word. When it comes to that, no, we don't have to pay attention to do what they say. But if there is any biblical way to do what an owner or an employee asks us, then we need to direct our attention to accomplish it. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Do you approach a supervisor or an employer's instructions with that mindset? That when they tell you to do something, that you pay attention to make sure you do it and do it the way they say to do it. You might say, well, I've got a really difficult work situation. That's fine, but most of the people Paul wrote to wouldn't have believing owners or employers. And slavery in the Roman and Greek cultures was brutal. And yet Paul's command is clear. If there's any biblical way, any biblical way to do what you're asked, then direct your attention to accomplishing it. 
So while you might have a difficult work situation, it's very unlikely that it's anything close to what the Ephesians experienced. If Paul's words to them are to be received, then certainly there is no excuse for us not to obey his command here either. Now, see, fine, I'll do what he says. <laughs> do what the boss says. Do what she says. That's fine, but there's more to it than that. We're not just to obey this command coldly or to get the assigned work task done. We need to adopt a correct attitude in how we do it. And so Paul lists now four keys to living out a worthy approach to work, four ways that we can accomplish our work tasks in a way that is worthy of who we are in Christ. And the first one is that we need to acknowledge that God is a part of our work life. He says, you do this with fear and trembling. The word here, fear, it means profound awe and respect for a deity. Colossians 3.22, Colossians was kind of a sister letter to Ephesians. Paul doesn't leave it open-ended to who we're just to fear and tremble before. Colossians 3.22, he says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. This reverential attitude is not towards your boss or your supervisor or your owner. It is toward the Lord. When he says fear and trembling here is to recognize the fact that God is a part of my work life. This same phrase, fear and trembling, is used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, about how we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is working in us the desire and the ability to do what pleases Him. If you're a Christian, God's doing that, and we need to allow Him to work that out. We need to live out what He is working inside of us. We must never approach our work environment thinking that He isn't a part of it. Now, that's challenging because very often we kind of go into our work environment and we leave our Christian hat on the hanger. And this should never be the case. Never be the case. This means I don't get to react however I want in my work environment. I don't check my Christianity at the door. I am still in Christ at the workplace, and that means I need to be a light there as well. And being a light means I need to be a different kind of employee. I need to adopt an attitude of submission. And the first way I do that is by recognizing that the Lord is involved in everything that happens in my work environment. I, again, I've been in management most of my life. I have been a hiring manager pretty much everywhere I've worked. And in all those situations, you know, I would hear the phrases, I don't want to hire, I don't like hiring Christians. It's not because they don't like Christians, it's because unfortunately many Christians don't have a good work ethic. This should never be our testimony. Let it not be said of any of us that we don't have a good work ethic. We should be known for being hard workers. We should be known for being humble. We should be known for being cooperative. We should not be known for being troublemakers or lazy. As a hiring manager, when someone told me they were a Christian, that was not usually a feather in their cap. It didn't usually help them get the job. Because very often when they'd find out I was a Christian or a pastor, they would be the ones calling me up going, hey, Pastor Will, you know, I was, I was at church really late last night, and I know you understand. I'd be like, no, I don't understand. What I understand is you're creating more work for everyone here. Nobody else got to call in because they stayed up late. Get to work. Well, I've got these problems going on. You know how hard it is. You know, yes, everybody else has problems too. Go to work. 
Someone's texting me, sorry. <laughs> Called in? No, just kidding. <laughs> Pastor Tom called in. No, he's on vacation. So, Do you approach your work environment with a profound awe and respect for God? Do you quake at the serious responsibility you have to let sanctification have its way in the work environment too? Or do you treat work like it's a secular task? When I graduated from Bible college, the Lord called me back here to plant a church. And we were so excited to plant a church. When you plant a church, there's not usually a salary waiting for you. So you work. And so I had been in the restaurant industry and before I went off to school. So I came back, got my old job back, but barely got a job working at a Chick-fil-A. And the owner there needed a new GM because his old one was getting his own Chick-fil-A. And I thought, oh, that'd be a great opportunity, Sundays off, da da da, you know, whatever. And he ended up hiring me, and I worked there, and I thought, yeah, I'll do this for a couple years, and then, you know, I'll be supportive in ministry, and, you know, and I'll focus on that. About four years later, you know, I'm barely scraping to make ends meet, and no prospect in sight of uh, being a salaried pastor. And I hated my job. It's a great job, but I hated my job because I saw it as what I didn't want to do. Saw it as just something that had to get done, something I needed to do, but certainly wasn't a desirable part of my life. And I remember I, I drove about 30 minutes to work, 25, 30 minutes to work every day. And I was driving one day and I was just so frustrated, grumpy. I, like, I hate this. I wish I could just full time do ministry. And I remember the Lord so gently, so kindly said to me, Well, He said, you have a ministry that you're driving to right now because there's people there. People I died for. You have some brothers and sisters you work with. There's ministry waiting for you the moment you get out of this vehicle, not just out of church. I was so deeply convicted because I felt like I'd wasted four years. And it's not that I didn't share my faith or I didn't minister to my brothers and sisters. My whole attitude stunk. I looked at it definitely more as like a, from a secular approach. And I purposed it in my heart on that drive that I would repent and I would begin treating my, my work relationships here, my whole environment here as ministry. And so for the next three years or so before I did become a full-time pastor, I spent that 25 minutes instead of listening to talk radio or listening to music, praying for my employees, praying for my coworkers. I had a particular gentleman older than me, and I don't know if he resented me as his boss because I was younger than him or because I was a Christian or for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know. He definitely was irritated with me all the time. And every little thing I had to work through with him was just a hassle. But I purposed it in my heart, you know, I'm, I'm going to love this guy and I'm going to try to be the best boss I can be for him, try to work with him. And I remember the day I left to go full-time as a pastor, he came up to me, tears in his eyes, gave me a big hug, and he said, I'm going to miss you. You said you're a hard worker. And he said, I knew you were trying, trying to take care of me. I remember thinking to myself, you hate me. <laughs> like, what? You just never know the impact you can have on somebody 
just by being a hard worker and treating them correctly. We're called to be light in that way. So we need to acknowledge that God is a part of our work life. Secondly, Paul says the next key is we need to work as if Jesus is the one who's asking us to do our job. He says, in singleness of heart as unto Christ. Singleness here means sincerity. It means with a pure motive. If you and I are going to adopt an attitude of submission in the work environment, we need to do our work with all our heart and not just do enough to get the job done. We should be known for putting in the best effort. We should be known for producing good results. Now, Paul certainly isn't saying, be the best employee you can be, and if necessary, neglect your family or your church or your spiritual life to do so. That's not what Paul's saying here. Everything must be in its proper order. Jesus first, if you're married, spouse second, family next, church and work life after that. But that proper order doesn't prevent us from being sincere in our effort at work. Now, I know there's probably some of you out there thinking, ah, I hate this message. I hate my job. (laughs) I don't want to be here, and I don't want to do that. It's hard to get motivated to do what I do, or it's hard to get motivated for the people who employ me. That's okay. You don't have to look to the content of your job or to your employers for motivation. We have a greater motivation to be sincere in our work. We do it with sincerity, with a pure motive, as unto Christ. When William Carey, a a cobbler who became a famous missionary in India, when he applied for foreign missionary service, somebody said to him, what is your business? They intended it as a slur because he was not a minister. He replied, my business is serving the Lord, and I make shoes to pay expenses. It's true. It's so true, and that truth dignifies all labor, all labor. Every Christian may say to themselves, no matter what they do, that my business is serving the Lord. All labor is dignified, not just your dream job. All of it's dignified. Do you approach your work as if Jesus is the one asking you to do your job? Because he's definitely worthy of doing it with a sincere heart, no matter how much I may not enjoy the tasks that have been assigned to me by my employer. Amen? The third key is you need to see your job tasks as God's will for your life. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now, I have to confess, when I see eye service and I normally would read these verses, I would think to myself, kind of like the person who's not doing their job, but then when the boss shows up, yeah, quick, the boss is in the room, you know, and then you start working hard. It's not that that this is referring to. It's actually the opposite. It means to serve in order to call attention to yourself. Don't do that as men pleasers. In other words, to do something to please people in contrast to pleasing God. We are not to approach our job with the goal of impressing our employer. My goal isn't to work in such a way that draws attention to how awesome I am or with the design of getting people to clap me on the back or the design of getting someone to notice something I do so I move up. This is huge because who doesn't want to hear from their coworker or their boss that they're doing a great job? Or even if you don't care what they think about how you work, who doesn't want to be offered a promotion or a raise? Even if you don't want to take it. 
You want to be recognized. You want to be seen. Our culture is one that craves validation, but we're not supposed to seek that from people or to call attention to ourselves to get that validation. It's one of the reasons it's our whole social media environment is so crazy. We type something up, and we think it's clever, or we think it's interesting, or we think it's funny, and then we check like every hour to see how many people liked it. That's not healthy. That's not healthy at all. I stopped asking my wife years ago how good the sermon was. <laughs> because anytime you ask, it's because you're fishing. You're fishing for a compliment. It's so rare that we can do something like that without some type of selfish motive involved. We're looking for validation. There is always a temptation to go fishing for a compliment or to do something specifically to get recognition. We are not to do and approach work life like that. Instead, because I see myself as Jesus' servant, I am to be concerned about what He sees me doing. We're to do it, he says, but in contrast to this eye service or as men pleasers, he says we're to do it as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That word servants is the same word in verse 5 for slaves. The concept that it's my life and I get to live how I want is the very antithesis of the life of submission. Whether you are a free man or a free woman or not, you're a slave to Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. We're all slaves. And when Jesus comes back, all will be bound to serve Him or experience the consequences. Now, that's not bad because He's a good king. And because He's a good king, that's only a bad deal for those who want to live for self. But Christians, even though the kingdom isn't here now, we're to approach life that way now. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, they were going back and forth about the claim of being a king. And finally, Jesus gave him an answer that Pilate goes, oh, so you are a king then. And Jesus in John 18, 37, he said these interesting words. He said, you say correctly that I am a king. And to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And then here he says it. Everyone that is of the truth listens to my voice. If we are of the truth, even though the kingdom isn't here yet, we're to live in submission to Him as His servants, even now, doing the will of God from the heart. The phrase doing the will, it means regularly doing what God wants, regularly doing what God desires and doing it from our hearts. It's not just right actions that matter. I must see what I do in my work environment as God's will for my life. Do you see it that way? I remember when the economy crashed in 2007, 2008, and we lost a lot of people in our congregation, had to move out of the area because Orlando was one of the worst work environments in the United States at the time. And so I had been full-time for about seven years, and I had to begin looking for work outside the church. I applied to over 300 places. None of them were named Chick-fil-A. At this time, I wasn't a young man anymore just trying to work a job until I could, my real job could work out. I was now 30-something. And the other Chick-fil-A I, I had worked at was way away from where I lived. And the ones around me now are right where I went to high school and college. 
And I was like, the last thing I need is to get a job or I'm flipping chicken and all of a sudden somebody from school walks in and they've got their nice tie on, their nice shoes on, driving their BMW, got some name tag that says VP of whatever. And I'm like, hey, can I take your order? Yes, yes. Hey, didn't I know you're from high school? Yes, yes, correct. Yes, you made something in your life and I'm a complete loser. (laughs) The Lord just kept, why don't you go back to Chick-fil-A? I don't want to go back there. (laughs) Thirty-something years old, I'm not going back there. Eventually I applied and they created a position for me that didn't exist. I was so grumpy about it too. I was in that interview, and he's like, you know, I don't really need a manager right now. He said, but I'm looking to do this, this, and this. We're looking to create this new environment, and I'd be willing to create a position for you, and, and I'd be willing to pay you this, this, and this. And I was like, God, opening all the doors. <laughs> in the first six months I worked there, I was Miserable. Miserable. Couldn't wait for my break. And it seemed like my entire break, I'd just count down the minutes when I had to go back. It felt like a failure, like I'd gone backwards somehow. And God had been so gracious to me and was taking care of my family at a time when a lot of families were struggling. I remember one day I came home and in my miserableness, Bev said to me, she said, well, I know this is hard. She said, but I don't think God intended for you to do, do work without joy. And then she just walked away. <laughs> Leave me with all that truth and walk away. <laughs> I remember when I finally said, this is your will for my life, and I'm okay with that. Everything was fine after that. Didn't care about anything else, I was happy. My work had value, my work mattered. Do you see the job tasks you have as God's will for your life? Or is, do you just see it as a career path or just a way to move up in life or your way to find worth in life? Your work is worthy not because you get to wear the nice outfits or have the fancy title or get the benefits package or live in a certain socioeconomic tier. Your work is worthy even if you make minimum wage because it's where God put you. And honoring Him and how you do it pleases the real master. And that's worth showing up with a smile every day, is it not? You're already in Christ. What else matters? Nothing. Well, fourthly, the fourth key to doing work in a worthy way is we need to recognize that that good work has value. Verses 7 and 8, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. With goodwill, it means with zeal or enthusiasm. Doing service, it's not just about doing work, but it means providing the humble service as you were instructed. How would your enthusiasm change in your work environment if your supervisor or your company said, hey, everyone who does exactly as they're instructed this month gets an all-expenses paid vacation to your choice of destination? Yeah, like, I'm in. Tell me what the rules are. Now, I realize some of you might be thinking, I still wouldn't be enthusiastic because I know they'd find a way not to give it to me. But that's actually kind of Paul's point. We don't do it for them. 
with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. We don't do it for them. We do it for Jesus, the Lord. And he's given us every reason to not be jaded. With all the riches he's given us, we can know that he will do what he promises. And verse 8 says that we know. The word here, knowing, is in the perfect tense, which means we know that we know that we know that we know. Knowing that we know that we know that we know that we know that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. A good thing it refers to any type of work that is morally good or useful. It doesn't have to be like for a good cause. It just needs to be something useful, something that's morally okay. Unless your employer or your supervisor is asking you to do something immoral, then your work has value. If what you are doing is useful to someone, even if it's hard for you to see how it has an important use, it has value. I remember working for the food and nutrition services at Orange County Public Schools and we had a few people in the higher-ups that, I don't know if they were believers, but they talked like them. And, and they would say things like, listen, what we're, we're doing God's work here. We're feeding kids. That's a great thing. Like, I'm not just out there making sure there's enough pizza as the kids come storming in from their classroom. These are people. People. They've been sitting in the classroom all day, and they need to eat. And I can either make their day worse or I can make it better. I can either be a positive influence or I can be a negative influence. I remember I had one student who he would come in and he'd be stealing from me all the time. He'd be sneaking in the lines and taking stuff and I'd find eight sandwiches in his backpack or whatever. I'd sit down and talk to him. Finally, I had to take him to the assistant principal. And as I'm walking up to the assistant principal, the assistant principal, he goes, you again! And, you know, and so well, I wasn't the only one who was having problems with him. This kid was, had a lot of issues. When I realized, I mean, the assistant principal just laid into him. And, uh, and I thought, oh, okay, this kid's got issues. And so I, I sat down with him one day and I said, what's going on? Why, why are you taking food? I'm hungry. Okay, well, why don't you ask? I said, what's going on? I said, do you, do you get breakfast at home? Do you get dinner at home? He's living with his grandma. Mom and dad aren't involved in his life. Grandma's got way too much on her plate because she's taking care of eight other grandkids. So I helped him fill out his paperwork so he'd get free lunch, free breakfast. And then I told him, I said, if you're still hungry, I said, come find me. I said, I'll find a way to take care of you any way I have to. I said, just don't steal from me. School was in poor environment, impoverished environment, inner city. I remember one day he came to me, he was all excited. He said, Mr. Will, Mr. Will. And he had this flyer and he said, will you come to my MMA fight? Kid couldn't have been more than 16. I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is like an illegal underground, like, you know, <laughs> MMA rig, you know. <laughs> like, I looked at him and I said, I'd be honored to be there. He came to me because his grandma was moving, so he had to move before the school year ended. And he specifically came up to me telling me he was going to miss me. I don't know where that kid's at today. I don't know if he saw the love of Christ and a couple things we got to talk about here and there had an impact. I don't know. But I know that I was very appreciative of the things that had been instilled into me that my work had value. 
Even if it didn't feel very spiritual at times, my work had value. I would pray with all my staff. Some of them were believers, some of them weren't every morning. And it's so funny because if things were running late or hectic or whatever, and I'd start giving instructions, we hadn't prayed yet, they'd all look at me. They'd be like, Mr. Will, we, we got to pray because you know how we're going to be if we don't. I had people from so many different ethnic backgrounds, and in that particular area of town, there was a lot of racial uh, tension. Every day, like, if I wasn't there, I'd be like, it was a mess yesterday, Mr. Will. Nobody here to pray for us. Even simple things, we can be a light. Our work has value. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same. The same here, it's a demonstrative pronoun that refers back to good things done. In other words, God will do the same good things for you and me. We'll receive it back. That's what the word receive means, to receive back or to get back. This is fascinating to me. I never noticed this before when I read this passage, but part of our reward in heaven will be based on whether we approach our work life in a worthy manner or not. Isn't that fascinating? Part of our reward in heaven will be based on whether we approach our work life in a worthy manner or not. And the cool ending here is this promise of reward applies to everyone in Christ equally. That's whether you're a slave or a free person, whether you have a high-paying job or a low-paying job, whether your employer treats you well or not, whether you have a lot of autonomy in your job or somebody's always telling you what to do. None of that matters. There's an equal reward if you're faithful, if you'll do it in a worthy way. And so I ask you this morning, do you see your work as something valuable? Or do you see it as just something that you have to do to pay the bills? And do you believe that when you approach your work in a worthy way that God will reward you with something valuable in eternity, that you're storing up treasure in heaven? Well, after addressing servants, Paul in verse 9, he has one verse for masters. It's a serious verse, but one for them. Who's a master here? Well, the word means one who owns property, which back then included servants or slaves. While it was far, far rarer, there were Christians back then who owned slaves. Philemon was in the ministry and he owned slaves. But Paul also instructed Philemon to approach the relationship differently than the world did, just like he tells them here. Again, just because Paul is addressing slave owners who are Christians, that's not an endorsement of slavery. It's simply Paul giving instructions for people who got saved out of a system dominated by slavery. And because the concepts Paul is teaching with the master being the person in authority, and because he mentions the principles for servants dealing with that person of authority as applying to both slaves and free men, then these principles for authority figures apply to any man or any woman who has a position of authority in a work environment. And so if, if you're an employer or a business owner or a supervisor, these words apply to you. And he tells us who are in those roles how to take a worthy approach to our authority in the workplace. He says, do the same things unto them. That's why he only has one verse, because everything he's going to say here is going to be extra except for this. He says, everything I mentioned in verses 5 through 9 that applies to employees, it applies to employers and supervisors and business owners too. If you're a business owner or an employer or a supervisor, you must approach your position, number one, with the knowledge that God is a part of your work. You should have fear and trembling in how you conduct yourself in that role. 
Secondly, you should be approaching your position as a supervisor, an employer, or a business owner as if Jesus is the one who asked you to do that job. Not something that you achieved and now you have the right to act how you want or do things your way. You should approach it as the fact that Jesus asked you to do the job. Thirdly, you need to approach your position as seeing your role and those who work under you as God's will for you and for them. They're there because God put them there, and you're there because God put them there, which means you need to figure out how He wants to do it. And fourthly, you need to approach your position by an authority by understanding that your work and everyone under you, their work has value. Your work doesn't have more value because they make less than you or because you've been there longer. Your work and their work has value. And that changes everything as a supervisor and employer, doesn't it? (laughs) We don't get to approach our work or our business as if it's our gig. God's a part of it, and we need to make decisions that honor Him. We need to see that Jesus is at the top of the ladder of our company or your department, not you. I need to recognize that God has desires for how He wants others to do their job and how He wants me to do their job, and I need to get in line with that. And I need to see that what I and others do have value. Do you approach your role as an authority figure in the workplace that way? If you don't, then you need to repent. Because those positions that you're overseeing are not slots in a business cog. They are people Jesus created and died for. And if you've been approaching your role as an authority figure the wrong way, then repent. Paul's next instructions is repent, stop misusing your authority. He says, forbearing threatening, which means to quit, to cease, to stop, to give up. Threatening. Stop doing it. Threatening means to declare that you will cause harm to someone. As someone who is, again, a a hiring manager and supervisor for most of my work career, there are times when you need to sit down with a problematic employee and talk about their performance. There are times when you will need to let them go because they refuse to change. But threats to do so should not be in your toolbox of motivation. We should be those who plead with our employees. Our hearts should not want to be rid of them because they're hard to deal with, but rather to help them, to serve them, and especially if they're a brother or sister in Christ, to disciple them. I'm very grateful for the superiors I've had in the work environment because almost all of them saw the realities behind a work dilemma. They would see that that was a person who had bills to pay or a family to take care of. And their heart was, let's find a way to help them get better. Let's find a way to help them do better. Let's find a way to equip them. Let's find a way to pour into them. As a believer, I should fear God. And that means seeing my employees or my subordinates as people, not positions. Because someday I'm going to answer to the King of Kings about how I handled the stewardship of employees that he entrusted to me. He says here in two reminders at the end of verse 9, Knowing, again, knowing that we know that we know, two things. One, that your master is also in heaven, and two, neither is their respective persons with him. A God-fearing person recognizes that Jesus is their owner and that I have a responsibility to discharge my assigned duties in a way that pleases him. A God-fearing person recognizes that while God may not be visibly seen in my work environment, he sees from heaven every action I take and he hears every word I say. And then I must also be reminded that he does not respect persons. 
The phrase here means to treat one person better than another because of their societal distinctions. Humanity can set up whatever kind of economic system we want in our society, but God just doesn't see it. We can say, well, this is middle class, upper class, lower class. This is this type of job, this type of job. This is respectable. This is not respectable. It doesn't matter to God. He doesn't see any of those things. You're the boss. This is your employee. He doesn't see any of those things. He doesn't say, oh, you work at Burger King? You're not as respectable as the person who works for Google. He ignores every societal distinction and treats us all the same. Galatians 3.28, for there is neither bond nor free in Christ. Male or female, Jew, Gentile, bond or free. We're all one in Him. We all have the same standing in Christ. No matter how much money you make, no matter what kind of car you drive. And so I ask you this morning, if you're a business owner or a employer or a supervisor, do you recognize that Jesus is your owner and that you have a responsibility to discharge your authority in the workplace in a way that pleases Him? Or do you treat people differently based on societal distinctions, based on their education or lack of education, their position in your company or lack of position? And just as serious, do you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ differently based on societal distinctions? We should not. Instead, let's be faithful employers and supervisors, amen? Let's be those who see people, not positions, families instead of numbers. And let's be those who fear God as we fulfill our job duties. Well, some of you might have come in today going, we got through marriage, we got through family, this should be much easier. If If you've been feeling the pain of heavy conviction after going through these various aspects of life where we need to exhibit submission, here's the good news. We're done. We made it. We're done. This concludes Paul's section on worthy Christianity. No more. We have no more beating you up. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's been good, but I mean, it probably has been challenging for many of you. But while we have reached the end of this section of Ephesians, it's it's not the end of the letter, and here's why. There's an enemy out there who wants to keep you and me from walking in a way that's worthy of our awesome position in Christ. He wants to either distract us, tempt us, deceive us, so that we don't live in the way that Paul's instructed from chapter 4 up to chapter 6, verse 9. And so we're in a battle, guys, and we're going to learn how to fight that battle in the final section of Ephesians. So let's all stand. Lord, you know every heart here. You know what we're going through, Lord. You know, you know the work situations that are waiting for us outside those doors. And so, Lord, I do believe because your word doesn't return void that you've spoken to us this morning. Whether we're in that position of authority or whether we're in the position of submission, either way, Lord, we recognize that we need to submit to you, that we need to treat others correctly in a way that pleases you. Lord, we need to live that spirit-filled life of submission in our workplace. So, Lord, as people are now committing to you things in their hearts, saying, God, this needs to change, or Lord, I agree with you, I want to do things the right way, will you please fill them with your spirit? Will you change us, Lord, that we might be different and be those lights in our work environments? Lord, please meet every need this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.